Amen, amen. Well, go ahead and have a seat. Would encourage you to get your Bibles out uh, and join me uh, in 1 Samuel 21. And for some reason, just make sure this mic is, mic is muted. It won't turn off. I don't know why. But uh, 1 Samuel 21 is where we're at this morning. And uh, as you're turning to 1 Samuel 21, encourage all of you to have your eyes uh, on a copy of God's Word. If you don't uh, have a Bible, we have some of those in the back. If you don't own a Bible, uh, that's our gift to you. Uh, but as you're turning to 1 Samuel chapter 21, uh, here's really the question I want to open with and really lead us forward uh, in some of these things that are in front of us this morning. Here's the question. When's the last time, when's the last time in your life that you have been truly fearful or afraid? Just when's the last time? I've just been afraid. I've been fearful. Maybe that was a physical fear. You felt physically threatened. Maybe there was an emotional fear uh, that was tied to that. Maybe there was some uncertainty in your life that you weren't sure about. But when was the last time that you were truly fearful and afraid? And then here's the follow-up to that. What did you do in response to that fear? How did you respond to that? How did you proceed in that? Is that something that you uh, allowed yourself to, to succumb to? Or is that something that you allowed the Lord to address in your life? Because the text that we're coming to this morning uh, in 1 Samuel 21 speaks both to David's fear and his distrust, that he is lacking confidence uh, in the Lord. And as we move through this, one of the things that we're going to realize is that this text is actually issuing a warning for us around some of the different areas and some of the different ways that we may be prone uh, to have fear or lack confidence or trust in uh, the Lord. And so what we're going to see God's Word revealing to us is this idea right here that in faith, listen to me church, in faith we fix our eyes on Jesus and not on our surrounding circumstances. Let me say that again. In faith we fix our eyes on Jesus and not on our surrounding circumstances. Because David, as he's operating here, he's going to be operating out of a place of fear. He's going to be operating out of a, a place of distrust in what he does. And so really we want to take uh, the, the, the warning that God's word issues to us. And we want to be people that are fixing our eyes on the Lord and trusting in him. And so before we go any further... I think we would do well to pause, uh, to surrender ourselves to the Lord, to, to submit ourselves uh, to all that the Spirit of God has for us. So let's go to the Lord in prayer uh, and commit ourselves to Him, and then we'll get into this text. Pray with me. Uh, gracious and good Heavenly Father, we do thank you, Lord, uh, for your great kindness towards us. God, we thank you for the incredible uh, blessing and benefit that it is uh, to open your word. Uh, and so, God, as, as we open the scriptures now, God, we're praying uh, that you would help us. God, that you would be leading us and guiding us and directing us uh, to hear and to receive all that you have for us. And so we submit ourselves now to you. God, asking you to come and have your way within us. And so whatever it is that we need from you this morning, God, we're saying you are free to do that in our lives. But God, as always, we want to be praying for the churches in the area uh, and not just for ourselves. Uh, and this morning we're praying for Canyon Bible Church and for Pastor Bill Butler. And God, we thank you for those brothers and sisters. God, we're praying that you would have the same freedom uh, to move and work in them in the same way that you would have to move and to work in us. And so, God, we surrender ourselves now to you, uh, to your uh, sovereign hand and your uh, good and glorious work in and over our lives. And so would you have your way and would you do your work for your good purposes? We pray this in your name and all God's people said. 
Amen. All right, well, the title of the message this morning is When Fear Replaces Faith. When Fear Replaces Faith. And, and one of the things that we're going to see in the text, and one of the things that we just have to be aware of, is that fear, when it is undealt with, when we don't address fear, when we don't deal with fear, we don't lean into uh, the reality of fear, when it's undealt with, it leads us into a place of distrust or disbelief in the Lord. And so that's what we're going to see with David here in chapter 21. And so here's how we're going to move through it. There's really two distinct scenes uh, in chapter 21. So we'll look at the two scenes and we'll spend the, the, the majority of our time in that. And then at the back end of our time, we'll, we'll see the warning uh, that comes from David's life, but also uh, look at how God is working in spite of David's fear and distrust. And really in, in <clears throat> Those final two sections making application to ourselves. And I understand this mic is kind of popping some. Uh, the mic I typically use when I put it on this morning to do a mic check, it broke. Uh, and the replacement mic that we had is defective. Uh, so I'll just deal with the elephant in the room. I hear it's popping. It's annoying. I'm sorry. I don't wear this because I move a lot and I'm really loud. So uh, I'm trying to accommodate for this the best that I know how, but it just might pop at times and we'll just have to deal with it. And next week, by God's grace, we'll have a different microphone. But let's get into what God has for us here and try to just set aside the distractions uh, and begin with this thought here in verses 1 through 9, that a distrust in God undermines our confidence in God's provision. I get that. That's a little bit longer. Let me say it again, though. A distrust in God undermines our confidence in God's provision. Now, at the end of chapter 20, David is sent out, or he begins to flee from Saul. All right, him and Jonathan, they had their covenant. They, uh, David goes his way, and he begins to flee. But what we begin to see in chapter 21 is this man who is fleeing is slipping or sliding into this place of distrust or disbelief in God. And Rick Phillips, in his commentary of 1 Samuel, says this about chapter 21. I love this line. Here's what he says. He says, David had great promises from God, but so little providence of them. Let me say that again. David had great promises from God, but so little providence of them. See, he knew all that God was going to do, and yet God had not done all of that yet. And, and in fact, David's life gets much harder and much more difficult, not easier, uh, on the back end of some of these uh, promises. But what begins to happen is as these promises aren't answered in David's timeline, he begins to move into this place of distrust. And there's almost this sense of, God, why aren't you doing this? Why aren't you fixing this? Why aren't you coming through in this? And loved ones, you have to remember the nature of a promise, right? The nature of a promise implies a period of waiting, right? Because what a promise is saying is, I'm going to do it. I just can't or am incapable or, or it's not ready yet to be done immediately. Because if I was just going to give it to you, Wayne, I'd just give it to you. I wouldn't be like, hey, I promise I'll give it to you. Here it is. But see, a promise implies this sense of waiting. And this is part of what David is wrestling in here, uh, is, is that God has promised something and yet it hasn't happened yet. And loved ones, don't ever allow yourself to get into the place where you start to disbelieve or distrust the promises of God because they haven't happened yet. And sometimes what we do is we look around and we go, we ha it hasn't happened, it hasn't happened, that's, in, that, that's incomplete. It just hasn't happened yet. Yet, and David is, is, is struggling because it hasn't happened yet. We want to hold on to God's promises. And so notice in the text, uh, this distrust of God undermining our confidence in God's provision. First of all, look at verse 1 and 2. 
And what we see here is that our lies or our dishonesty, right, our lies are rooted in distrust. Here's what God's word has to say. Verse 1 and 2, then David came to Nob, to Ahimelech, the priest, and Ahimelech came to meet David, trembling, and said to him, why are you alone and no one with you? And David said to Ahimelech, the priest, the king has charged me with the matter and said to me, let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and with which I have charged you. I've made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. David just straight up lies to the priest. Hey, why are you here? Uh, well, the truth is Saul's hunting my life and I'm kind of terrified and I'm trying to get out of Dodge. Yeah, but I don't really know what you're going to do with that. So, well, I'm on a secret mission. Yeah, that sounds good. I'm on a secret mission from the king. And he just lies to him. Why? Why does David lie? Because at the end of the day, he doesn't really trust what the Lord is going to do. See, if David trusted what God would do, if he trusted God's character, if he trusted God's nature, that would enable him to be honest. And of course, loved ones, the same is true for you and I as well. See, if we really trusted the Lord, if we really uh, trusted the hand of God, the character of God, the nature of God, we would be free to be honest in all things. In fact, I'll, I'll make a, a bold, definitive statement, uh, but let's just begin to walk through it here. I'll go so far as to say that all of our lies, all of our dishonesty, and all of our deception is ultimately rooted in some distrust of God. The reason you and I lie, the reason you and I fudge the truth, the, we, the reason that we're not entirely honest is because at some level we don't trust the Lord. Now you might start thinking about it like, well, I don't know if it's really that or maybe there's some other things. What, what I'm arguing is that if you drill down to the source, what's really going on in your heart of hearts is at some level you don't trust what God's going to do. See, we lie because we don't trust that God can handle the situation. Right, that's what's going on with David. Well, I don't know if I just told Ahimelech what's really going on, that God can handle this. So I'm going to kind of massage the message here. Right? Or we lie because uh, we, we don't trust that God's going to restore the relationship. Well, I can't tell my wife that. I can't tell my husband that. I can't tell my kids that. They wouldn't respond well. So uh, let me just kind of do a little damage control. Let, let me just kind of uh, change it up a little bit. We lie because we don't uh, trust that God's going to give us what we need. So I, I got to come in and I got to kind of, you know, just, just maybe this will help them give me a little bit more. We lie because we don't trust that we're going to be liked or approved of. Well, I, I got to just maybe embellish a little bit on who I am. And of course, this is all rooted in the fact that I'm not finding identity in the Lord. We lie because we ultimately don't trust God, his character, and his nature. And so the next time, the next time you're, you're, you're tempted to, to fudge the truth, to push it a little bit uh, into the ambiguous territory, I would simply ask you to just go to the Lord and be like, God, what is it in this moment that I'm not trusting you in? What's the thing that I'm not trusting you in? Because when we're trusting in the Lord, it frees us to be honest in all things. Right? Faith in the Lord enables and empowers honesty within us. Because my confidence is no longer in my ability to manage a situation. It's in the, the Lord's sovereignty over all things. Remember Corey Ten Boom and her family uh, live, living during World War II and they would hide Jews in their home. And in a providential sense, they had this kind of secret trap door that was right under their table. And so the soldiers would show up and they'd be like, do you have Jews here? And they'd be like, yeah, they're under the table. 
Now, they weren't trying to be cute or clever. It just happened to be the case. But see, here's the thing. When you trust the Lord and you trust God's sovereignty, you don't have to lie about that stuff. You just be honest. And if David's honest, he's trusting the Lord here. And he's saying, hey, here's what's really going on, Ahimelech. And then God's got to work out the rest. But disbelief undermines our confidence in God's provision, and it's manifested in our lies and our dishonesty and our deception. Notice this secondly. Not only are our lies rooted in distrust, but as we look at how distrust undermines our confidence in God's provision, what we see secondly in verses 3 through 6 is our reluctance to heed God's reminders are also rooted in a distrust of God. Because I think what God is actually giving to David here in verses 3 through 6 is kind of this gentle tap, gentle nudge. Hey, buddy, remember what I've done. I'm trying to help you be reminded of some things. Look at what your Bible says, verse 3. David then says, now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. And the priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread. If the young men have kept themselves from women... And David answered the priest, Truly women have been kept from us as always when I go on expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy even when it's an ordinary journey. How much more today will the vessels be holy? And so the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of presence, which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day it is taken away. Right? I, I think this is a reminder uh, that God is giving to David to help him uh, remember the things that he's done in the past to give him confidence in this moment. Right? He goes to the priest. He's like, hey, you got something to eat? Uh, all, all we've got is, is, is the holy bread, or you might know of it as the, the bread of presence, uh, as also mentioned here, a showbread. And we, we see this in a couple different places in the Old Testament. Exodus 25 talks about the table uh, that houses the bread and the construction of the tabernacle. Leviticus 24 tells us about this bread of presence and its function and purpose. This is a part of what the priests uh, would eat when they would remove it. It was part of uh, the, the, a thanks offering, if you will, that, that ultimately ended with them. But that bread would, would sit in the tabernacle and it symbolized both God's presence amongst his people as well as God's provision to his people. And so it's, it's shocking that the priest would offer that to David. It was only meant for the priest. And yet the priest is saying, you know, this really isn't for you, but I'm going to offer to you anyway, which should have been a clue for David that God is using and giving things to him uh, to supply his needs. And it should have, should have uh, jarred him like, okay, obviously God is meeting my needs. And I, th I think there's actually also an illusion here uh, to, to some other elements of bread. Now, now, has bread played any other role in Israel's history up to this point? Like, like any time where it was kind of this miraculous thing, I don't know, every day for 40 years, that it showed up in the wilderness. And so again, this concept of bread and God's provision and God's care over his people should have been ringing around in David's head. And almost the sense of like, okay, right, what am I doing here? Of course God is going to provide. Of course God is going to care. Of course God is going to see me through in the midst of this. And Jesus actually picks up this very same episode in the Gospels. And he's rebuking the Pharisees. Remember the disciples are walking through the fields of grain on a Sunday morning. And they're picking heads of grain and they're eating it. And the Pharisees begin to rebuke them. And here's what Jesus says in response. He actually quotes from Hosea 6. And he says to them, if you would know this statement, then you would understand 
that he, God, desires mercy and not sacrifice. And really what's going on, the Pharisees are fixated with doing, and what Jesus is trying to drive them towards is this place of faith and trust and belief in God. And that's what David needed at that moment. And loved one, maybe that's what you need at this moment as well. Maybe you need that same reminder that God is going to make provision for you. Maybe you need that same reminder that God is present with you, watching over you, caring for you. And, and, and that reminder, that maybe even that tap on the shoulder, that, that gentle nudge, hey, 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 do you remember this? Do you know this? Let me remind you of this. And sometimes, sometimes we're just reluctant to hear what it is that God wants to remind us of. Sometimes we're slow to catch it. Sometimes we just miss it. But man, this bread here symbolizing God's presence should have jarred David, speaking to covenant and promise and God's provision and faithfulness. And if David gets this, right, if he understands this, he's repenting for the ways that he has not believed and trusted in the Lord. And so let me just ask you, are there reminders in your life that you're ignoring because you don't want to repent of your distrust? Are there things that God is doing, things that God is prompting, things that God's saying, hey, are you seeing this? Are you, are you kidding me? How, how can you not connect the dots on this? And you're saying, no, 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 I don't, I don't want to be reminded of that because <clears throat> I don't want to have to repent of that. And our reluctance to heed God's reminders are rooted in our distrust Verse 7 is an interesting verse and maybe even feels out of place, although it'll become far more prominent next week. But it just tells us this. It says, A certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. And I won't say much on this because we'll pick up his story uh, and what he does next week. But just this ominous note letting us know about this man, and and it'll come to fruition uh, in uh, the next chapter. But look at verse 8 and 9, and here's here's the third thing that we see around a distrust in God uh, undermines our confidence in God's provision, and it's this, loved ones. It's our confidence in worldly weapons are rooted in distrust. See, our confidence in anyone or anything outside of the Lord is rooted in a distrust of the Lord. Because this right here, this is a wildly uh, intriguing and curious exchange that takes place between David and Ahimelech. Here's what he says. Verse 8, David said to Ahimelech, Then have you not here a spear or a sword at hand? For I brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. David's like, hey, you got any weapons? You got any weapons I could just take with me? Now, Now, to be clear, weapons aren't inherently wrong. It's not bad to have a weapon, but I want us to think about weapons in the context of what we've seen in 1 Samuel, right? Like, remember, this is the guy, this is the same guy a few chapters ago who refused any weapons and refused any armor in going into a military conflict with a nine and a half foot giant. And now there's no military conflict in front of him. He's just on the run and he's like, hey, you got any weapons? Why? Because his confidence is not in the Lord right now. He's trusting in himself and he's trusting in his ability to rescue and to save himself. And so really what he's doing is like, I'm going to trust in this weapon to take care of me instead of trusting in the Lord to take care of me. And so he's like, you got any weapons I could take? 
Now look at what Ahimelech says in verse 9. And the priest said, he's like, yeah, I've got one. Here's the one I've got. The sword of Goliath the Philistine. And then check out this next line. Whom you struck down in the valley of Elah. He's almost like, hey, do you remember that day when you killed that giant? Have you forgot that? It's almost like, now I don't know how much the priest knows. I don't know if the priest is like, dude, you're being an idiot right now. What is wrong with you? Or if he's kind of clueless. But there's something hilarious about him saying, I've only got one. It's the sword of Goliath. You remember killing that guy? That's all I've got. Now, I think this might actually be a stronger reminder of God's protection and God's presence and God's provision than the bread was. Right upon seeing that sword or hearing about that sword, how could David not have been reminded of God's deliverance of him? How God is helping and protecting those that are his. Uh, loved ones, I think this right here, this is a moment for David. Right? This is a moment that, 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 that he, man, he can pivot away from his disbelief and his distrust. He, he can move back to this place of confidence. I mean, like, what, what am I thinking? Of course like God saved me there. Why would God be any different in this moment? It's a moment of decision for him. A moment to once again choose to trust in the Lord. To remember the strong hand of God being over his life or your life. To believe again in God's ability to deliver his people. Right, This moment where his faith is strengthened and restored and encouraged in the Lord. You got any moments like that in your life? Any moments that, 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 that at the sound of a word or, or maybe a, a, a picture or just the very beginning of a memory that begins to get jogged, that you're instantly reminded of the strong hand of God that sustains and preserves and watches over you and brings an unshakable confidence in him. You got any moments like that? Maybe, maybe, maybe for you it's being in the doctor's office and he's like, I can't explain it, but... Or a miraculous provision that can only be uh, done by the hand of God. Or some kind of intervention that can only be ascribed to the work of God. Right? These moments. In Joshua 4, one of the things that God had the people of Israel do as they rolled into the promised land was they picked up stones uh, of remembrance in the middle of the Jordan River. And the purpose of those stones is for them to be able to look on God's past faithfulness to give them confidence for God's present and future faithfulness. Right? These moments. You got moments like that. I was thinking about that in my life. What are, what are those moments in my life? Here, I'll share a few of them. Just think of the word Sean. Not Sean. For you, you might be like, that's just a cheesy name if your name's Sean. Don't worry. It's my youngest brother's name. That's why I say it's cheesy. Okay? Uh, but Sean, here's what you have to know about my youngest brother. Uh, when my mom was first pregnant with Sean, uh, what the doctors told her was that, oh, he'll never make it past the first trimester. It's not going to happen. And then my mom went back in and it was like, okay, well, if he lives past the first trimester, he's not going to make it past the second trimester. And I was like, well, if he ends up living, he's going to have all kinds of different issues. And in fairness to the medical staff, he has issues. Not medical issues, just younger brother issues, okay? But he's 31 years old, perfectly healthy. That's a moment for me. If you say 500, 
think about nine months, when Becky and I were living overseas as missionaries, nine months in a row, $500 short. And every single month, some random person, hey, I don't know why, I just felt compelled to send you 500 bucks. Some of these people wouldn't even know. That's a moment. Or if you say the word adoption, that's like a hundred moments in that process. When we think about our little three-year-old, a little ball of energy and defiance. That's what she is right now. But wouldn't trade her for the world. Like that, that's a moment of unshakable confidence. See, David had moments like that too. You could say bear. You could say lion. You could say anointing. And I promise you, I promise you, Goliath would have been one of them. See, what, what, what's actually happening here in this moment, David's distrust and David's fear is being confronted by God's faithfulness. You can choose to rely and to trust on the Lord, or you can choose to rely and trust in the sword of your enemy. And maybe, loved one, you got some of the same things going on in your life, and you're being confronted, right? The fear and the distrust is being confronted by God's faithfulness, and you can choose to rely and lean on Him, or you can go lean on the sword of your enemy. God help us, we trust in Him. And you'd like to think David in that moment just fall to his knees like, Lord, what am I doing? Forgive me. Nope. And David said, there's none like that. Give it to me. Yeah, that, that, that'll save me. There's something wildly ironic that David is actually trusting in the very item that symbolizes God's victory and deliverance. Don't miss that. And this distrust undermines our confidence in God's provision. And God help us that we'd have eyes to see and ears uh, to hear and hearts that are willing to embrace the reminders that God is giving us to trust him. You might need to walk out of here today and you might need to think about some of those moments and be reminded of the unshakable confidence you have in God to see you through what's coming down the road or what's right in front of you. But a distrust in God undermines our confidence in God's provision. But notice also this, look what we see in verses 10 through 15. It's a distrust in God undermines our confidence in God's protection. See, when we fail to trust in the Lord, when we fail to believe in the Lord, it's undermining our confidence in God's ability to protect us. And when we live in distrust, what we end up doing is we flee from this obedient faith and we end up putting ourselves in some really, really bad spots. I, I, I mean, this whole thing here in verses 10 through 15 feels a little Jonah-esque in what happens. So, so look what happens. Verse 10, David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. That's a town of the Philistines, in case you didn't know that. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is not this David the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. See, what you've got to understand is that distrust is going to place us in compromising situations. When we're not trusting in the Lord, we're going to end up in compromising situations. Now, I was trying to think about David's choice here uh, this week as I was studying. I was just trying to think, could you have devised a worse plan? David's like, you know, i got to get away from Saul. i got to get away from Saul. I got it. I'll go to the Philistines. 
and I'll go to the, the group of people that I killed 200 of them to, to pay the bride price for McCall, and, and I'll go to the, to the very town that Goliath was from, uh, their champion who I slayed, and I'll roll into that town with his sword on my back. That'll work. You're like, nope, that's the dumbest plan possible. Like, you could not have come up with a worse plan, David. It, 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 it's just, it's terrible. See, because people don't forget people like David. And they, they clue right into it. They're like, isn't that the guy that they sang songs about? Him killing us? I don't know if you've ever done this where you have an idea that makes sense in your head, but then you begin to verbalize it or do it, and you're like, this made way more sense in my head than when I started to say this out loud. I think there's a little bit of that for David. Like, he gets there, and he's like, you know, this just made more sense in my head. This is just a bad idea. But here's what you got to know is that distrust puts us in compromising situations. It put David in a compromising situation when he lied. It put him in a compromising situation when he trusted in a weapon instead of the Lord. And now he's in Gath, the hometown of Goliath, and he ended up there because he's trying to get away from Saul, but he's not trusting in the Lord. You're like, bro, that is just one bad decision after another. And that's what happens when you choose to put your trust in someone or something outside the Lord. You're just going to start making bad decisions. You're going to start pursuing sin. Uh, you're going to find your identity outside of the Lord. But I think the most compromising of all situations is what we see in verses 12 through 15. And the other thing that distrust does is it creates this need for self-deliverance or for self-salvation. So look at verse 12. It says, David took these words to heart. He's like, uh-oh, they know who I am and what I've done and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he's like, what am I going to do? Here's his million-dollar idea of how he's going to get out of this. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. To which Achish said, I got plenty of other crazy people already. I don't need this crazy guy. Get rid of him. Right, but he, here's what happens. Distrust creates a need for self-deliverance or for self-salvation. Now, loved ones, can, can, can we all agree that when you have to pretend to be crazy, things are not going well for you? Right? I, I think we can all agree that when I have to pretend to be crazy, uh, I, I'm in a jam. So when Becky and I were living in Vienna, one of the guys that we worked with, there was a guy there named Dan Hanna. And Dan was this big guy. He was probably 6'4", big broad shoulders, um, but, but Dan, Dan had lived a very interesting life, um, and so uh, I remember one time he was recounting to me, I think he was living in Cleveland or Detroit or someplace like a uh, big city in the Midwest at that time, living in one of the worst parts of the city, and he was trying to get uh, some, some things rolling down uh, the, the line in his life and whatnot, uh, but the people that lived right below him were just very bad people, sold a lot of drugs, uh, a lot of crime, and they loved to party late into the night. And so there's one particular evening, it's like a Tuesday night, it's two in the morning, and, and Dan's got to get up early the next day for work, and they're super loud, and he's like, Mike, I just snapped. And I started picking my couch up and slamming it onto the floor because I was so angry with them. Well, you do that three, four, five times, the music stops, and you can start to hear, oh, yeah, all the guys, we're going to go deal with him, and we're going to get him. And he's like, I could hear them coming up the stairwell. So, of course, I'm like, what did you do? He's like, I took a cue from David, and I just try to think what's the craziest thing I can do. 
He's like, so I stripped down to my underwear. I started drooling, and I swung the door open, and I said, what do you want? <laughs> to which every one of them was like, whoa, 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 yo, hey, no, we're good, we're good. <laughs> Again, if you have to pretend to be crazy, you're in a bad spot. Now, in fairness, it worked, <laughs> both for Dan and David, but you're in a bad spot. But here's what I don't want us to miss. The same guy, the same guy who calmly and confidently stood before Goliath in faith now acts like a maniac who's possessed by fear. This is where distrust leads us. And there's a cutting and biting reality that David is resembling more and more the very man he's trying to escape from. In Saul. And so it begs the question, how do you get here? How do you go so far off the rails that this is where you end up? See, loved ones, this is what happens where we as people, and we, we, we encounter difficulties, we encounter hardships and struggles, and, and we don't take those to the Lord in a healthy cry, in a healthy petition, or a healthy lament, but we will si silently feed and nurture them to our own detriment away from the person of God. That's what, uh, that, that, this is where David goes off the rails. Things got hard, self-pity grew, and prayer and God's word were ignored. And maybe that's the trajectory for some of you right now. Things got hard. The self-pity starting to grow. And I'm not pursuing the Lord in his word. I'm not pursuing the Lord in prayer. I'm just silently feeding and nurturing all the hurts and the slights in my life. Right? What, what, what's needed in that moment is not some whispered frustration away from God. What's needed in that moment is an honest lament before God. See, David couldn't understand the disconnect from the promise of God that he knew and his present circumstances. And loved ones, maybe you've got that same thing. Like, I, I can't make the connection between the, the, what, what I know to be true of God, the promises of God, and yet what I'm experiencing in my life. And see, lament, right? Lament is the biblical bridge that, that, that helps to connect those two things. Lament is simply an expression of sorrow or grief that comes in the form of a prayer. And what lament does is it addresses the disorientation of I know this is what God has said, and yet this is what I'm experiencing, so how do I put these things together? Love when you take them to the Lord. And all over the scriptures, all over the scriptures, the Bible is clear about lament. And, and, and you can go a variety of places in the Psalms. I mean, there's an entire book called Lamentations for crying out loud, right? They, they, they've got some cues on how to lament in that book. The book of Job has a number of laments. We could go on and on. The point being that you, what you're going to find is this process that looks something roughly like this. So let me give you four, four elements of lament real quick. I won't expand on them. If you want to talk more about this, happy, happy to do so. But, but here's the general process you're going to see. One is that we choose to face God. You can't ever lament if you turn your back on God. The only way you're ever going to lament is if you're willing to face God. Right? Chin to chin, face to face. i got to be honest. i got to hear from you. Secondly, that you express an honest complaint. Why do the wicked prosper? God, why, why aren't you favorable? The, 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 that, that's biblical language. You're, you're going to find those words in the Psalms. So you're going to express an honest complaint. Third, you ask God to act. 
This is typically where we start when it comes to praying. Just like, God, will you do this? But I think on the heels of these other things, it's, it's far more significant to move through the process. I'm asking God to act, and then I'm going to trust the character of God. And David has fallen into this place of distrust. He didn't lament. He didn't bring it to the Lord. He's just kind of doing it all on his own. Now, up until this point, through the first, uh, well, we didn't see David for the first 12 or so chapters, but from the point that he showed up until now, he has been exemplary. But this episode highlights David's failure. And I say that because we want to let the gospel inform how we think about this and what we do with this. See, because when you read the Bible, when you, when you read Genesis 3.15, what God lays out there is this promise that a serpent crusher is going to come and save his people. And as you read through the Old Testament, sometimes you start looking at characters and you're like, is this the one? Is this the serpent crusher? Is this the one who's going to rescue us? And, and for a little while, Abraham looks the part, and then, nope, not that guy. And then for a little while, uh, Moses looks the part, and nope, not that guy. And for quite a while, David was really looking the parts. But nope, still not that guy. Ultimately, they all fail until we get to the person of Jesus. Now, David, in many ways, is foreshadowing Jesus. But at this point, it's clear, hey, he's not the Savior. So we keep looking for the one who will rescue us. And maybe you read 1 Samuel 21, and maybe you even find yourself a little disappointed in David or his failure or just the, man, he just dropped the ball here. And yet I would argue that his failure should bring immense hope for us for a couple reasons. One, first of all, that God still chooses to set his love on sinful people. Right, if, if, if anything, we look at David and we're like, man, praise God. God's still with him. God's still for him. God's still reminding him of his covenant promises and his presence and his provision. That David's not outside of the covenant love and affection and faithfulness of God. He's very much within that. And so the hope in this is not that I have to go prove it. It's not that I have to earn it. It's not that I have to demonstrate to God I'm enough. Jesus has already been enough for us in our place. And so we just hold fast to that. And then secondly, tied to that, inasmuch as David is clearly not the serpent crusher, that God will pr provide the faithful one who will, in fact, crush the serpent and save his people. Yeah, David is faithless here, but one is coming who will be a far greater David and a far greater Moses and a far greater Abraham and who will fail in no way be the very person of God himself who will once and for all crush the serpent and free us from our sin. And so in that, what we realize in faith, we fix our eyes on Jesus and not on our surrounding circumstances. We're not falling prey to distrust, but we're strengthened in the Lord. Now, let me just with our remaining time, do two things that I think by way of application will be helpful for us as we think through this account. Um, I, I, I want us to both heed the warning of David's distrust uh, and some things that we can draw out of that uh, and then embracing God's faithfulness toward us as believers. But let's begin with this idea. We heed the warning of David's distrust. Three things uh, from this text that I think are helpful and applicable to us. The first is this. 
Uh, listen to me. Mature believers are not immune to doubting, to fear, to resentment, and to distrust. That means none of you are immune to falling into the same spot that David fell into here in, in chapter 21. Because up until this point, David has actually displayed a, a, a maturity, a, a, a quite compelling maturity. Right? He's had great confidence in the Lord. Uh, he's served faithfully uh, to Saul. He's pursued the Lord. Uh, there's been humility. But even he slid right into this place of distrust. You're not immune to it either, loved one. Right? There's, there's not some maturity level. We, we don't graduate. You don't level up. You're like, ooh, I'm level 12 in spirituality. I won't ever struggle with this again. Wrong. Like, it's on the table for all of us. And that's why we have to continually pursue the Lord and keep our eyes fixed on Him. That is the only immunity to doubting and to fear and to distrust is a continual pursuit of the Lord. One other note with this that I think is helpful is tied to this. I think this is why we need community and accountability. Do you notice who was absent from David in this account? Yeah, his close friend and confidant, Jonathan. Right, apart from, from his friend, apart from the one who would speak truth into his life, and David, it ain't long before he's slipping into the weeds. You think about this last year in our society, we shouldn't be all that surprised to realize this surge in fear and anxiety and questioning and, and distrust and disbelief while we've also simultaneously been isolated and cut off from one another. It shouldn't surprise us. It should shock us it didn't come sooner. And so in the context of relationship, we want to help one another navigate these things. But the warning that we have to hear is we're all capable of falling into this. Secondly, make note of this, that our distrust has real consequences. So we'll say all the time, right? Like when you sin, your sin never just impacts you. Right? It always impacts and affects others. It's never just you. And our distrust has real consequences that will impact us as well as others around us. And in David, right, one of the consequences for him is, is as the distrust welled up inside of him, he's leaning more and more and more into self-sufficiency. Right? He trusts his plan. I'm going to lie. He trusts his weapon, uh, the, the sword, uh, but he does not trust in the Lord. Let me just ask you, what are the places of self-sufficiency that you tend to run to in your life? What are the things that you're like, no, I can trust in this, I can depend on this? Right, my skill, my intellect, my discipline, my bank account, my position, my whatever. Like, what are the things that you are trusting in instead of the Lord? Because, loved ones, these things functionally replace God. And I think one of the most stunning elements in this account is any absence of David pursuing the Lord in any capacity. I mean, he showed up and he had a priest right out of the gate, right? One-to-one -one conversation with the priest could have been like, hey, man, I'm in a rough spot. Will you pray with me? Will you counsel me? Will you help me? And pursue any of that. And listen, listen, listen. The pit of despair, the pit of despair is characterized it's characterized by an absence of pursuing God. And there are real costs when we choose to live in distrust. 
whether it's missed opportunities, whether we're disappointed by our sin, whether we're distracted by the things of the world, living in fear instead of confidence, whatever it may be, our distrust has real consequences. Thirdly, make note of this, that our slide into distrust can come quickly. Not, not only are we not immune to it, but man, it can happen like that. Because David was humming along quite well through chapter 20. I mean, in spite of a lot of bad things happening in his life, man, he was humming right along. <clears throat> but it ain't long before he went from serving in Saul's court to slobbering in the corner of Goliath's hometown. And it came quickly. You're like, man, how, how did we get here? How, how did it get to this? Hebrews 3 tells us, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Now, I don't think most of us are eagerly desiring this, right? Like, I don't think any of us wake up on, you know, I really want to slide into a place of distrust today. How am I going to do that? That's not the case for most of us. Yet it's a very real thing. So how, how, do, how, do, how does this happen? How do we avoid this? What should we be paying attention to? And I think one of the primary ways that we slide into distrust is we end up living in the past. We want to hold on to past successes. We want to hold on to past victories um, instead of holding on to the Lord himself. So here's this, this, this really kind of insidious thing we do is we actually deify the act or the victory or the success while ignoring God himself. In fact, the Apostle Paul warned us of this, of this very thing. This is what he says in Philippians chapter 3. Let me read this to you. Uh, you probably have always thought that this meant leaving sin behind. Uh, but he says this, one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. But do you understand contextually what he's talking about for the entirety of that chapter? Is leaving behind all of his victories. All of the things that he could lay claim to and go, look at how great I was here. Or look at how successful I was here. He's like, I'm leaving all of that behind. And maybe for some of us, it's time that we leave behind some of the victories or the successes in our past. And the way we combat the slide is to leave behind anything that dampens our desire to hold fast to God himself. Not holding fast to the things of God, holding fast to God himself. God help us, we'd heed the warning of David's distrust. And then finally this, real quick, that we embrace God's faithfulness toward fearful believers. Now I'm going to draw the, the, these two items. I think they're here in 1 Samuel 21. Uh, Chris talked about Psalm 34 and also Psalm 56. Both of those psalms were written by David about 1 Samuel uh, chapter 21. I would strongly encourage you to go read those, uh, be encouraged by those. Uh, but both of those really are David reflecting in hindsight. Because you, you might read Psalm 34 or 56 and be like, oh man, he seems to have his head about him. Why was he an idiot in chapter 21? Because he's writing those in hindsight and realizing, yeah, man, I just blew it. But two things, two things here on this. First of all, that we embrace God's faithfulness toward fearful believers. The first is this, is understanding that God provides for the needs of his people. In fact, David says that in Psalm 34. He's like, man, lions go hungry, but I'm fed. And the loaves are a simple and yet profound testimony of God supplying and sustaining our needs. God meets David's physical need by giving him food. God meets David's spiritual need by reminding him of his provision and his presence. Now, David didn't necessarily lean into that, but it was there. And maybe you need to be reminded of the fact that God is meeting your needs, that God is supplying your needs, that God is sustaining you, that God provides the needs of his people. And will you look to him to provide for your need? And then secondly, this, 
that God brings deliverance for his people. Now, this is largely unseen in 1 Samuel 21, but it is very clearly seen in Psalm 34 and Psalm 56. David understand that God is the one who brings deliverance. And we see this in a couple ways, right? God delivers David uh, from Saul. God delivers him from the Philistines after his really bad idea. But I think the most impressive thing is that God delivered David from himself. He delivered David from his sin. He delivered David from his distrust. And I think this is the greater and more necessary deliverance that David needed. And the way that God delivered David from himself is that God didn't let David hide amongst the Philistines. God outed him and God exposed him. And sometimes, listen to me, church, listen. Sometimes God is going to deliver you by exposing and outing your sin. And when he does that, it is the most merciful and kind thing that he can do. Because what God is doing is he's drawing that into the light so it can get dealt with. There's a passage in Numbers 32. I have a love-hate relationship with it. Uh, and I love it for what it's accomplished. I hated it in the moment. But the text is this. Be sure that your sin will find you out. Here's why I hated it. My mom prayed that for me all the time. And no one in the history of humanity got caught more than I did. Okay? Like constantly getting busted. And I hated it then. And I'm incredibly thankful for it now. Because it really is the kindness of God. And so if one of the ways that God is delivering you is that he's outing sin in your life, it might not feel merciful. It might not feel kind in the moment. I'm just telling you, that's exactly what it is. And so don't try to hide it. Don't try to justify it. Don't try to massage it, right? We lie because we don't trust God. So don't lie about it. Just be honest about it. You don't need to, you don't need to do the, 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 the show, social makeover thing. Just lean into it. Inherent in the gospel is that you and I are not saved because we're good. We're saved because God is good for us. Jesus is good in our place. That's what we want to hold on to. And so once again, in faith, we fix our eyes on Jesus and not on our surrounding circumstances. And so as a church, we're going to put that into practice right now. And we're going to fix our eyes on Jesus, not on our surrounding circumstances, because what most, if not all of you know, uh, is that in a few days, Pastor Ryan uh, is leaving for Kansas. This is his last Sunday with us, his wife and uh, his kids are already in Kansas, so why don't you come on up, brother? Uh, I'm going to invite pastors and elders to come on up, and uh, we are going to pray uh, really in a commissioning form uh, for him. And so in as much as there's loss, uh, th there's a lot of loss for us, and there's a lot of gain for First Southern Baptist in Junction City. But listen, listen, he here's the gain for us, is we get to participate in what God is doing to care for his church universally. So, so like, um, we, we endured this guy in his early to mid-20s, so he's less dumb when he gets to Kansas. In the, same way, in the same way that a church in Arizona endured me in my 20s and 30s, so that I was less dumb when I got here. And so, so in as much as there's loss, there's also great gain in getting to participate in what God is doing. So uh, I've got a microphone. A few of these guys are going to pray. Um, I, I don't know. You speak into that. Is that on? Is it on? Can you turn that mic on for us, Christian? 
um, and then I'll pray, uh, I'll, I'll pray uh, to close. But church, b- before you pray, Joanne, I'll start with you. I'm going to have you stand up. And, and, and while you might not be praying out loud, I'm going to ask you to just kind of reach your hand out and all of us share in and participate in this. Just speak loud. I don't think it's on. that you have given Brian to us here with his testimony to little children, to the youth, the teens. I just praise you for that. Father, I thank you that he is a man after your heart as well. And I pray for him as he goes to Kansas that uh, you will use him there. And we just uh, pray your leading and guidance in all of his sermons Amen. and his his uh, work with the people there. I thank you for him. Yeah. Pastor Ryan, the same way that Paul charged Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the, to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, having, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from the listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. And Pastor Ryan, as you are serving as pastor in Kansas, we pray that God would anoint you to bring the word faithfully to that congregation, that you would be true to his calling in your life. And we thank you for the many, many hours that you have invested in us and us in you, that you are now bearing much more fruit. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Father, we ask for your blessing on Ryan and his family as he goes, that you would uh, multiply um, the ministry of the word in that church. Um, God, that he would not only teach that church, but he would equip more leaders from that church who would be men of the word, and um, that you would grow a culture that is um, deeply honoring to you. Um, God, I just thank you for the way he's blessed this church and and your faithfulness to us uh, through him. And God, just given the perseverance and steadfastness to, uh, to walk closely with you personally so the overflow of his devotional life will, will serve and meet the needs of those people. Yeah, Father, we do thank you for this brother, uh, this friend, shepherd, pastor. God, we thank you for the years that we have been blessed by Ryan and Alexis and their kiddos. God, we thank you for the ways that he has been an encouragement and a source of help and loyalty uh, and care. Uh, And yet now God is on the other side of this as we uh, get to play a role in in sending him out. God, we do pray for uh, First Southern Baptist there in Junction City and for your hand to be on that body. Uh, But God, as we think about sending Ryan out, I think about uh, Paul before the Ephesian elders in Acts 20. 
I want to pray that, that, that same line that, that, that Paul says, that God is, even though Ryan's not going to Jerusalem, he's going to Junction City, God, I pray he would go constrained by the Spirit. And while he doesn't know what will happen to him there, that he would be fully confident in you, that he would uh, choose to accept whatever uh, you choose to bring upon him, whether that be blessing uh, and, and, and wonder, uh, or God, whether that be imprisonment and affliction, whatever it is that you would bring that, uh, that he would choose to accept that. And then God, I pray that he would not account his life of any value, nor as precious to himself but that he would finish the course in the ministry that he's received from you to testify to the gospel of your grace, Lord Jesus. And so we pray that you would hold him up, God, that you would send him out knowing that he is loved and cherished and valued here. But God, we send him to accomplish your purposes because we care more about the kingdom than we just care about our own little community here. And so inasmuch as we get a value and share in what you're doing in other churches, God, a stake, a part of us, one of our best, one of our brightest being sent out. And so, God, we send him now to accomplish your purposes for your glory. And all God's people said, amen.